Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. This episode of Engendered extends our series on gender and the social construction of identity. Our guest is Dr. Tanya Leslie, an educational consultant who has worked for over 20 years in educational publishing. Dr. Leslie's work centers around diversity and inclusion and on creating educational content that engages students and youth in developing a cultural consciousness as a force for understanding ourselves and our society. She has also worked with school districts nationally, providing workshops and seminars to help educators integrate this belief into their practice. We will be speaking with Dr. Leslie today about her work on literacy, academic resilience, and culturally responsive content and pedagogy, and how literacy might facilitate resilience in vulnerable school groups, in particular in children of color. So welcome, Dr. Leslie. Thank you for having me, and please call me Tanya. Okay. Well, I I first want to say I found your presentation, your keynote speech today at the Eric Carle Museum, very enjoyable. Thank you. I really, really love doing that work, and I so enjoyed being there. It was a great day. So just for our listeners' sake, you gave a keynote at the Diversity and Inclusion in Children's Literature Summer Teacher Workshop entitled Reading the Self Through Mirrors and Windows, Diversity in Children's Literature. So to start with, what do you mean by diversity? Well, Diversity is one of those words that people have been throwing around a lot lately. And I think sometimes we think of diversity kind of with a small d that maybe we're just talking about race or maybe we're just talking about, you know, gender. But I like a very kind of big D diversity where we're talking about differences of all types. So I like to borrow from this group, We Need Diverse Books. They have a really broad definition of diversity, which includes people of color. It includes LGBTQIA identity. It it includes um, diversity of ability. It includes religious diversity, cultural diversity. So I like to think about diversity with a big D, especially in relation to children's texts, that we're beyond just thinking like, oh, I want to make sure that there's a black character or there's an Asian character. But, you know, Um, thinking really kind of deeply about people. That's great. And I I think there's a a lot more other kinds of diversity I personally would love to hear you talk about later Mm -hmm. that just wasn't described just now, but we'll, we'll save that for the later part of the conversation. So when you started your talk, you addressed your being a young reader and your, uh, favorite series, children's book series, Little House on the Prairie. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, I was a Little House on the Prairie Were fan you? as well. Yes. I think it was probably like a sign of our time because they also had the TV show at the time. So I think for a lot of us in a certain age bracket that it was a really meaningful series. Without you know getting too much into it, I, I think the sort of the um, idealistic family dynamics mm-hmm. that the show represented you know, the traits of kindness and compassion and empathy and and generosity that I think were themes through all all of the shows, at least on TV. 
I don't remember the books as much, really impacted me. And and you described how it impacted you in terms of providing a world into, you know, both a window into the world as well as mirrors into a world. So can you describe what you mean by those terms? Well, the the analogy of windows and mirrors was a analogy created by uh, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. And she wrote about in the 90s that um, books can be a window into other worlds, real and imagined. And books are also, when the lighting conditions are just right, they can show a mirror. And so in the kind of literacy community, we've been using that framing for a lot. And it's helpful because it makes you think about, you know, when I think about, let's say, my experience with the Little House books, they were a window, right, into a world, into a place that I would never know this kind of prairie homestead act living. But there was also a mirror of, you know, this young girl who was having adventures and was curious about life. And so I felt a lot of myself in Laura Ingalls. So while it wasn't necessarily a direct mirror there, you know, she was, she was like me in so many ways. Mm. And then at some point you described your encounter with the character, Dr. Tan <laughs> yeah, and, and your quote unquote cognitive dissonance that that you experienced. Can you tell us about that? Well, recently, like in June of 2018, there was a conversation about should we take Laura Ingalls Wilder's name off of an award? And it's because of her portrayal of Native Americans in the text. And I had to really think about, you know, my initial reaction was like, oh, I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter. You know, maybe you read these books and it doesn't matter. And then I remembered that there was this Dr. Tan. So I did research as a grown-up, like looking to see, was that a, a false memory? Like who was this black man that appears in the book? And I find out that he was a real person. And I remember that I didn't think about race in the sense that I didn't think that Laura Ingalls as a white girl couldn't have had an experience that I had, right, as a black girl. But I remember when I saw Dr. Tan, it put a question about what were black people doing on the prairie? Like it made me realize that there was an absent narrative that I had, I didn't question the absence until it appeared. And then I really wondered like, who was he and what was his role? And it just kind of put into question a lot of what I thought I knew about the black experience at that time. Yeah, and I don't even remember him, at least in the TV show or in the books. He is in the TV show. Really? My research. I think he's, <laughs> I don't remember what, I just looked at like episode guide and he is in, um, he's in the TV show. Was he the only person of color? He He's the, definitely in the book. The okay. only, he's the only black person, right? Uh-huh. And then you have Native American um, characters. But what, Were there really? I, I in Little House? Couldn't even, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been so long ago. Yeah. I mean, that's the controversy in the yeah. second book. Ma, right? She says, like, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And um, there's a whole series because they're on, you know, they're on land. They're on native land. And so they have a few encounters. And in those encounters, you know, native people are kind of described as like these shady characters to be feared. Um, They came and they stole, you know, which I'm putting in quotation marks, they stole food and things like that. But in a rethinking of it, and if you do some research, they were the ones who were on the native people's land. Mm-hmm. And so the um, there had been treaties that were broken. And there's a whole kind of backstory that explains the situation from a different point of view. And I think that's where the question about it nowadays is like, whose story are we willing to hold on to? And by putting her name on a legacy award, 
then we're kind of awarding, right, her point of view, which was faulty. She was a child. She had, you know, she was just telling her memory. Mm -hmm. But her memory doesn't do service to history. Mm. Do you know if how consistent the TV show was to the books? Because I actually saw the TV show first and then I read the books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking to you now and listening to your talk, I had no recollection whatsoever of the Native Americans on the TV show. I remember it in the books, but not on the TV show and no people of color. So that was, I guess, my way of maybe whitewashing and, you know, adding a different lens of revisionism maybe to what may have been there to make it more palatable for me to remember it in such a positive way. Well, I'm almost like embarrassed that I have such a strong memory that I can say to you that <laughs> that the that the show was based on I think it's the third book by the shores of Silver Creek or something like that. So it's based on I forget how many books, maybe there are five in the collection, but it's based on the third when they're living in town. So with Nellie Olson and Uh all of that. So those characters don't appear in all of the books. Uh They appear in a specific book. So the um, TV series, I think, is based mostly on that particular book within the series. I see. So during your talk, you referenced something called textual lineage um, and why charting one's textual lineage is important, both as an educator and as a student. Can you describe what you mean by that? Sure. Textual lineage is really the work of Dr. Alfred Tatum in Chicago. And I got to know him through my work at Scholastic. He's just a phenomenal researcher and educator. And um, he was looking at how black boys engage in literacy practices. And he found that for many of them, they don't have this kind of textual lineage, which he says is kind of how books shape identity. You know, that they didn't really have books that they felt spoke to them. And that spoke to the lack of books, right, for that population. So I find when I talk to people about a textual lineage, people, especially like educators, librarians who love to read, it's a great activity because it activates their memory around text that they love. But then when we kind of apply that window and mirror, right? Like, was that book a window for you into another world? Or was that book a mirror for you? That's when they start thinking or realizing that there was a lack of diversity in the books that they read. Because we take it for granted, and then we have this kind of warm memory, right, around the books that matter to us, and it's hard for us to critique them. So I, I find his kind of, the idea of a textual lineage really compelling. So when you talk about diversity, do you also mean that there should be a balance between the proportion of windows and mirrors? So because Little House on the Prairie for us both seem to be more a window than Mm -hmm. a mirror. And when you reference Dr. Tan, that was one of the first and few instances where there was a mirror. Mm -hmm. And so is is that what you're referencing as well, that that we should have as, you know, people of color and women and other kinds of differences should be represented in the text that we consume. Yes, yes. And I I think, let's say, looking at um, Dr. Tatum's idea of this textual lineage, for some people, when they chart, some, if you use the idea of like charting your textual lineage and also looking if the books that matter to you served as mirrors and windows, you'll find, like I found, that the books that I read for the most part in the first half of my life before, you know, 10, 
did not include black characters at all. And I was reading the books of the time, Judy Bloom, Beverly Cleary. You know, I was reading the books that were there to be read. So for me, I didn't really encounter a book that focused on a person of color until I read Malcolm X in high school. And that engaged me in a whole different way. And meanwhile, right, there's identity development around race, because in high school, you start becoming really aware of yourself or really aware of myself as not just a black person, but particularly a black woman in New York. So I found that I really turned to books then by black women authors, because I wanted to see, you know, some semblance of self in text. Yeah, I completely relate to that. Similarly, I wasn't exposed to any Asian American characters until I got to college as a freshman. And it never even occurred to me to think that there were any Asian American authors, (laughs) let alone because they weren't appearing in, you know, as protagonists in these books. So my first one was The Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston. And then that kind of got me into learning about Asian American history and and whatnot. And thankfully, in college, I was exposed to feminist studies and feminist film studies, which really, for the first time, I felt was a consciousness raising for me, you know, of an awakening of understanding the world and, and having a lens to understand all of the experiences that I've had. Yeah, It's interesting because I I think that it's easy to feel like it doesn't matter, right? You know, I think about my textual lineage, and despite not reading about Black people until later in life, I was an avid reader. I love to read. But I think it does something to you because it certainly wakes you up. When you come into con- when you come into contact with these books, it kind of wakes up a piece of you, and I think that it does it does damage, you know, to think that people like you, people who look like you, are not a part of a story, don't have anything to contribute, possibly don't have adventures, don't live on a prairie, whatever it is, you know, the absence has speaks volumes, and I don't think we really understand that. Yeah, and and when you during your talk you referenced Dr. Tatum's phrase of using enabling versus disabling texts. So this concept isn't just for the person who's different, but also for the person who's in the majority, you know, the white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, who may be in most literature, but having that different perspective that other people, quote unquote, right, are valuable and and their stories are worth telling, I think is also important to be enabling for those for those people and students as well. Right. Because the absence speaks volumes to them too. So if I think it's Rudine, Dr. Rudine Bishop Sims, who says that um, when children only encounter stories about themselves, like it builds a dangerous egocentrism that you think that it's about you, you, right? Like you think that the world, that your view is the default and that people see things the way you see them. So the absence speaks volumes to both, right? So I don't see myself in a story and then other people don't see you either and don't expect you to be there. And I think maybe in our culture, right, we're coming to that moment of all the people who haven't had books that showed them um, images of other people. This is why we have this culture of like, you don't belong here. What are you doing here? It's impossible for you to afford this neighborhood or you shouldn't be here. And it's because the narratives that they've read or encountered and whatever a text might be, whether it's a movie or a commercial or, you know, the texts of our times render a narrative that renders people invisible. Yeah. And 
And I think also, you know, to your point earlier, the risk of not having these enabling texts is that it could impact a student's academic performance. You were saying in your talk, for example, that lots of students of color might be reading a lot at home, but they're not interested in reading the academic texts that are, you know, put upon them in their school Mm -hmm. setting, which I completely relate to as well. Yeah, I think um, for, and you know, that's part of Dr. Tatum's research, but, you know, a lot of other scholars have done work in that area of looking at literacy and um, when young people kind of become disinterested. And they become disinterested because they're maybe, you know, saturated, oversaturated with stories that aren't about them or stories that, you know, what he would call, what Dr. Tatum would call disabling, which kind of shows a view of whether it's Black masculinity, Black femininity as being loud or boisterous or whatever, right? So it serves a view that's not consistent with how you see yourself. And so almost as a safety precaution, you have to kind of disengage from this kind of negative portrayal. And what happens to a student who may challenge those stereotypes and those images in the classroom? It's interesting, right? Like sometimes those students don't do very well, depending on who's the teacher, depending on um, what's going on. Um, There was a uh, a research study I read that I don't want to mess up the citation of, but it, it spoke about how young women who were raised in the nation of Islam, they, because they are fed and like raised on very kind of positive pro-black messaging. They are very academically astute, but they get in trouble a lot because they push back, you know, and, you know, some of this knowledge isn't taught in school. So teachers don't always know. And when children are pushing back and saying like, actually, that's not what happened, or actually, that's not the story, they ended up getting in a lot of trouble for that, although their sense of self was really, really high. So I think it speaks to what you're saying that you don't get rewarded always for having a different point of view, especially if that view goes against what your teacher thinks is normal, what maybe the school thinks is the way things should be. And then you were saying just now their sense of self was may have been high, mm-hmm. but does it remain so? You know, if the teacher or the academic setting doesn't value those traits right. and pushes back upon it. You think you, you would have to be a strong child, right, to kind of stand up against, to stand up against adults, to stand up for truth. You have to have a lot of strength and probably not every child is built for that type of work. Yeah. And then also, I mean, there's a lot of research that's done around how teachers treat the different genders, you know, differently yeah. and have different expectations and mm-hmm. um, reward and punish students differently for the same kinds of behavior. Yeah. There's a lot of research about, you know, those loud black girls, right, that talks about kind of black girlhood in ways that doesn't give them a pass. You know, the thing, and and it shows out kind of in the data when you look at disciplinary data of schools that, you know, black girls are punished really harshly for the same you know, infractions that white girls do and don't get sent home or don't get suspended. There's a policing, there's a metting out of punishment in a way that is disproportionate to how other children are treated and to, you know, the infractions themselves. And I think that, you know, that's kind of the work that I do when I work in school districts, like how to get people to really think about, well, what's going on here? Did they, you know, my whole comment about like when children call you a racist, I find that teachers, you know, for white teachers, that's one of their big 
biggest kind of triggers. They don't want to be called racist. And I've seen teachers get into a fight with a student like, I'm not racist. How dare you? And they lose sight of maybe there was something happening here. Like what was going on that this child felt that they wanted to call you this? And there might have been something prejudicial. Maybe there was something that happened that felt unfair. And how can, you know, educators react in ways that open dialogue instead of shutting people down? And so I think thinking about children and the experiences they bring to classrooms, thinking differently about that means that you'll also get different outcomes, right? Maybe you won't be so quick to punish. Maybe you won't be so quick to judge student behavior. So speaking of representations of race, what are some of the positive racial uh, representations that you've come across in your research? In in children's books? Yeah. Oh, well, there's so many good oh, ones What about now. historically? What's the earliest? Oh, that- well, so you're talking about um, one of the things I like to do in the, the um, talk is discuss that kind of historical basis. And one of the first kind of positive representations with the W.E.B. Du Bois Brownies books, which was a magazine in the 20s. And reading that and coming upon that was a really fascinating thing for me that he had this vision that he really wanted to create positive imagery. And he did it for, you know, quote, children of the sun. And he had these goals that he wanted these books to really do a lot of work to give, you know, black children a vision of what could be to give them role models to help. I think there's a quote where he says to kind of heal their little hurts. And it really spoke to me because I think there's still a need for that type of text. How were those books distributed? There were magazines, I think it was by subscription. So they weren't widely probably distributed in the sense of like the books, the other books that I showed, like Little Black Sambo. They weren't being produced in a mass kind of uh, major publishing house. But it was really one of the first, outside of like religious kind of circulars and that sort of thing, like community newspapers, it was the first attempt to tell positive stories about Black children from the press, even though it was a limited press. Essentially, you were only able to access it if you were wealthy enough to pay for the subscription? I believe so. Okay. And there, of course, there are probably stories of, you know, how they were bought and sold and traded Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, magazines like that within the community would definitely get passed around and and sent around. But I do think that it was a subscription basis. Not 100% sure, but I think it was. You know, obviously, I wasn't aware of this. I'm guessing you weren't aware of this when you discovered it. So there's definitely been a gap historically Mm -hmm. in the production of these kinds of images. How bad is that diversity gap today in children's book? We're definitely, the gap is closing, but it's such a large gap that even the increases are still small. So the CCBC which I'm going to mess up the acronym, but I'll just say the CCBC, they do an annual count of books, diverse books that are published each year. And for last year, they noticed that there was an increase in the amount of books published that show different characters, Asian characters, Black characters, Hispanic, Latino, Latinx characters. And there's been an uptick, but we're still not talking about more than 10%. So in any category. So when you consider that against For the most part, books about white characters represent 70% of the market. That's kind of crazy for as long as books have been being published. And for, you know, schools, that means that most books 
in schools are not about children of color, whereas most children in public schools are children of color. That's kind of crazy. So we are moving to close the gap, but it's it's a slow walk. Does that index measure other forms of diversity as well? If we were they to began to count for LGBTQIA characters. Okay. Yeah, because here's the part where I think that there, there needs to be more diversities in terms of family structure. Personally, I'm a single mom, and it wasn't until last year that they added the single parent emoji. <laughs> so I was really frustrated with that mm-hmm. for, for many, many years because, you know, they only had like, I think, well, and, and then of course they don't even have the Asian single parent. It's just white right now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, they, they, they had LGBTQ um, parents, two men, two women with a child but never one man or one that's woman with a child. Yeah, until last year, I remember. And see, that's kind of my talk too, right? Like if you're of that community, you see it. But if you're not of the community, you don't. And that's part of why it's really important to do this work because we can't trust our judgment. You know, I can't imagine, and I can't assume that my framing of whether it's literacy or whatever, based on my own experience, is the right one. And so we need other voices. You need diverse voices at the table so they can say, well, what about this and what about that? It's not you know, necessarily that, oh, I have bad intentions about it, but I, it's not my community. And so I don't think about it unless someone brings it to my attention. So that's interesting, right? Like I've seen those emojis, but I'm not a parent, so I never really think about them that yeah. much. Yeah, and then my other pet peeve is around diversity in books around different family structures and experiences. So like mental health, you know, if you have a parent, let's say, who is struggling with um, an addiction or with a mental health problem, or they have to go to the hospital, they're ill, you know, they they have more, I think, representations of illness like cancer and, you know, death and, and grieving. But if you have a non-traditional family where someone maybe is incarcerated, you know, and your, whatever, your aunt, you know, is, or grandmother is your caretaker. And yet your parent is still in your life. Like those stories aren't there. And so because they're not there, the absence of it makes it a stigma. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and homelessness too, is not something that I've seen a lot. Well, it's why I think like organizations, like we need diverse books are really important because they, with their really broad definition of diversity, I think are looking for those sorts of things, like really looking beyond just kind of the diversity of race and pushing for diversity in so many different ways so that, you know, we may never get to a point, like I I feel like I may never read a book about a girl whose parents are from Central America, who grew up in New York City. Like I may never find a direct book, but I might be able to read a book about a Caribbean girl, right? And I think that's the goal, that there there's enough representation that you can find some type of mirror for your, your life in a text. Mm-hmm. And then you also spoke about the distribution of race across those who are educators Mm. and the importance of that. Yeah. Why is that important? Well, I think, you know, as we're turning into, and I'm quoting, you know, making finger quotes around majority minority, our teaching force is still majority white. You know, I think people hear that and think I'm saying something, you know, really revelatory or something or radical, but that's the reality. And I think when you're operating in any situation where people are different from you, it means that you need to be mindful. You know, as a black woman, when I work with black teens, they, you know, we're different. 
And I may think, like, I think I'm part of the hip-hop generation, you know, growing up in the 90s in New York City. But when I talk to kids about hip-hop, they're clear that I'm not part of that community, (laughs) right? So we have to be mindful and there's not the correspondence of race in schools. So I feel that it's it's important for white educators to recognize that and then be mindful of how can you be more aware of what's happening culturally with your students, how they're living, um, their experiences, so that you can bring that into the classroom knowing that it's different than yours, not just because of race, right, because of all these other identity factors. But um, race is a big one, and it's something to be mindful of. Is that part of what your work entails addressing racial diversity amongst the educators that are in the classrooms? Yeah, I do a lot of training with friends of mine and and people I've worked with at New York University around the country doing trainings of that sort, developing what's called kind of a culturally responsive lens and looking at the work of Geneva Gay and Beverly Tatum. And I I don't want to leave people out and not cite my sources, but there's a lot of um, Gloria Latson Billings. There's a lot of research around this that's been going on for a while, like for like 20 years in the research literature, but bringing kind of a fresh perspective and using that lens to look at data and look at outcomes and really push toward equitable solutions for schools. And how have they responded to the information that you're providing? It depends. You know, I've, I would say for the most part, educators, librarians, teachers, classroom, you know, librarians want to do the right thing for kids. They want to be the best that they can be and they want to help their children and they love the kids in their classroom. I'd say like 99% of teachers feel that way. So I usually have a good session. Every once in a while in different topics, there are people who have something to say or there's kind of a negative voice or people who push back and say race isn't a social construction. It, you know, it's science and things like that every once in a while, but not a lot. But recently I was working with a school district where we read the book George. And George is a book about a child who, a boy who wants to be Charlotte in the school play and then realizes like he wants to be Charlotte. Like in general, in life, he wants to present as a girl. He feels that his identity is feminine. And so this book is written in the, using the pronoun she. And it's this kind of question of how can you be your best and true self? So I was working with some educators and we read the book together and I noticed some men like left the room. I paired the book with the real life story book called Becoming Nicole and showed a TED talk. And Nicole talks about how she had the similar situation, right? Going through fourth grade and being bullied, being followed into the girl's room um, where she felt safe. And it wasn't until later where she could be a she, right, in school and, and feel safe that she was able to to kind of become into her true self. And I, I thought it was so interesting that they they left and they didn't leave in a huff. You know, they got up and they got coffee and they got up and they walked out. But I I noticed that they left. And I thought, that's so interesting to me. Like, why is this so uncomfortable for them? So there are things like that. You know, I don't necessarily have combative voices, but I see people disengage, you know, whether they take themselves out of the room or just take themselves out of the conversation. I'm curious, what grade level were these educators, were these teachers? This was, I don't remember, like this was an all kind of school, all district Situations. I don't know where what schools they were in necessarily. Is, is there an opportunity in that kind of situation to debrief with them afterwards and address it? Well, I try. You know, I try never to assume. Right? Uh-huh. Maybe they did have to go to the bathroom or get coffee. Um, so I try not to assume. And I, I also my style of training. I'm. I feel like people here 
what they need to hear when they need to hear it. And more often than not, people come up to me afterwards and have private conversations. I rarely seek anyone out unless I notice like they're having a, a traumatic moment or tears or something like that. Then I'll come over to them because I, I think that, you know, you have a right to struggle, but I hope that you recognize that you are struggling. Like that's the work I'm hoping that you're doing on your own, that you're saying to yourself like, whoa, this is a lot for me or I'm having a hard time. And I think that people have a right to do that with some privacy, you know? Mm. So I don't always seek people out because I can't be sure what I'm seeing. In that instance, I thought it was really interesting that it was an interesting observation that people left during this conversation. That reminds me of a uh, a story that someone who was a trainer for child welfare workers shared where she was leading the training over a three-day period. And she noticed throughout the training that there were some individuals who were not engaged. And this was training for domestic violence to help them understand how to recognize and deal with it when they encountered those situations and child welfare situations, right? That cases that they had been working on. And at the end of the three days, she said, those disengaged participants left their binders underneath their chairs. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So it, it seems like, you know, your example brought this to mind. And it seems like there are certain settings where one would be more called to act. <laughs> and she didn't either. She just, it wasn't her job to do that. But, you know, it's certainly concerning that we're all not equally engaged in our own, you know, learning. Well, it's a difficult situation because one, you think about, well, there's, let's say 30, 40 people in the room and who deserves your energy. But I remember, and I, I try not to engage where I, when I see people not paying attention, then I try to change up my presentation. Like, how can I get you engaged, right? It becomes kind of a challenge for me. But I do remember I was um, training and there was a man who was really disruptive. He kept saying things like, these kids, you know, you don't even know how bad they are and stuff. And I could see that what he was saying was impacting the people that he worked with. You know, like they, it was shutting them down. Wait, can I ask what color was he? He was white. He was a white <laughs> <Okay>. man. <laughs> yep. And I could see that, you know, I, I could see that this is who he is, right? This is who he is in school. And, you know, the teachers around him were shutting down and it was turning the room into a kind of quiet place. Like nobody wanted to deal with his voice. And I thought, like, what am I going to do? What do I say? So finally I said, you know, kids have to go to school because that's the law. But you don't have to teach them. And I have to ask you, if this is how you feel, what does it do to you every day to go into a school? Like, let's forget, maybe the kids are horrible. Like, maybe everything you're saying is true. What does it do to you? Like, why Why would you put yourself in this situation? And I, I just want to ask you, like, what's how's that going for you? And it so threw him off. And I said it without, like, being combative. And in a real question, like, I really had the question of, like, well, why are you there? You know, if you think these children can't, can never do anything good or never going to amount to anything, wow, like that's, that's sickness for you. You know, that's toxic for you every day. So it shut him down in that, like he stopped engaging completely. But I felt like at least it created a better, that him not speaking was better than him speaking and um, shutting everyone else down. And afterwards, a few teachers came up to me and they were like, he's like that all the time. And we're so glad you addressed it. But that's how I, I try not to be combative back, but really like, let me ask you a real question. You know, how is this impacting your life to be in a situation that you think is hopeless? I mean, I have to say, I feel like 
those situations come up so often. And shouldn't we come up with a, a way to make those teachers accountable? Because they they are imposing, you know, in your phrase, a single story onto their students, right? And it is harmful. And why isn't it okay for us to be able to, as parents or as students, say to the principal that school, this person should not be here? Well, and parents absolutely should. And I, you know, again, like, I don't really know the background of what's going on in that particular situation. But I do think that there should be a pushback and that people who are harming children with their negative attitudes or their um, lack of belief that they should be dealt with and talked to. And often, right, the the way that is is by sending them to these types of training. So, you know, you do what you can, but I, you can't change everyone's mind. And, you know, I hope that that situation, like my hope is that he walked away and thought like, huh, you know, had a mind change. And it's something I say in my trainings that if I can change your mind about one thing, I feel like I'm winning. I don't expect that in my training, like I can solve the kind of problems that we have or like take away prejudice or, or even help people really, you know, take away their unconscious bias. But if they can leave thinking like, well, wow, I really should explore that or I need to read more about that, then I feel like I won because that mind change shifts everything. Basically, you're creating openness. Yes. Right. Like an open door. You yeah. can at least walk through an open door. But if minds are closed, then nothing changes. So I feel like I hope that my training provides that kind of opening of door, opening of dialogue. So you you also talked about the importance of language and word choice, which it seems like you used very well in that example. What can teachers do better to what kind of resources um, and opportunities can they create for themselves to think about how they can use language and words to create a culturally responsive classroom? Well, there's a lot of um, research and work going on now. A friend of mine, Dr. Colette Hopkins, talks about um, a new language for a new people and how we can be mindful of putting people first in the language that we use. So instead of saying slaves, and slavery, saying enslaved person, um, enslavement, right? And just even the feeling of that. A, a slave feels like, oh, just a person who doesn't have any agency. But an enslaved person still has their personhood um, and their situation doesn't define them. Same as in, you know, this the rhetoric going around now of like the illegals and that type of language instead of maybe an illegal person, an illegal immigrant, you know, putting the person back into our language so that we can have empathy. Because if we take the personhood out, it's easy to think about people, you know, think about things that have happened in history in a way that is not empathetic, that makes it feel like, well, they deserved it or they should follow the law or whatever. But when you put the personhood and kind of center your conversation around that, then you realize like we're all humans and we're all having experiences and find ourselves in bad situations. So how can we how can we find some agency, you know, in our in our lives? Yeah, your example of saying enslaved person, actually, I think is very much akin to a lot of the dialogue that's happening in the space of gender justice and language as well, because you're holding accountable the person who is enslaving mm -hmm. rather than making the person who's enslaved responsible. Mm -hmm. 
even in saying it, right, like it feels different. Yeah. A slave feels like just the word. It feels like a person who's just not standing up for themselves. Yeah, like victim blaming right. for women. Right. So when you put that personhood in there, it, it gives you a space to find empathy. It gives you a space to also look for the agency of that person, right? An enslaved person is looking for a way to get out of their situation. A slave feels maybe that they, the word slave maybe kind of implies like you're just bound, mm-hmm. you know? And I think also there's a, a temporality to using the word enslaved because that's just, you know, a, a space that you're occupying for that moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a slave, then that's your identity. Right. You can transcend your situation. Yeah. yeah. I find like it's just it's it's really interesting. And I find that um, the more that I'm mindful of it myself, because, you know, we're all imperfect. But the more that I'm mindful of how I'm looking at language, um, people with disabilities, for example, is another thing is, you know, like how you talk about people and their situations in life gives kind of energy to the situation. So if you are talking about people as if they're aliens, you know, like what's an alien? Aliens like a movie and a person from another planet. So when we start talking about people who live next door to us as aliens, we are alienating them, right? Like Mm -hmm. we are creating the language that um, puts up boundaries. So you shared during your talk a video of the doll experiment. Mm which I felt the whole room was very moved by. Can you describe what happens in that? Sure. So there was the doll experiment of the 1950s where children were given different types of dolls to see which one they preferred. And, you know, overwhelmingly the children, um, this is a Clark experiment, chose the white dolls. So this is part of Anderson Cooper's show, and they did this again in you know, the 2000s, I forget exactly what year the the experiment took place, but they wanted to see, right, has things changed? Because you would think that they have. And what they found was it hasn't. And um, I talked about kind of cognitive dissonance and that feeling of holding two contradictory ideas together. And you can see it in the video when black children are asked, like, well, which is the bad doll? And then they pick the doll that has the same color skin as they do. There was a little girl who said, well, you know, I don't like, and she's kind of looking at her own skin. And I thought like, wow, you know, that's got to be painful, right? And the kind of brain function that follows that has, has to be hard and confusing. When you realize that you're saying something that is who you are. You're saying that you don't like brown and you are brown. You're the closest color to the one thing that you're picking out. So it's a hard video to watch, but I like to show it because I think we all need to remember that these ideas, like they're part of the the air that we breathe here and we have to be mindful in dismantling it. I saw a lot of parallels in how the children in the experiment responded to cues about racial hierarchy as they've done in other experiments with gender. So, you know, girls kind of labeling themselves less than boys Mm. and boys, of course, labeling girls less than (laughs) themselves. Mm. So it's, it behooves us, I guess, as a society to be aware, you know, of the messages that we're sending to children um, and reinforcing. Right. And, and so that brings me to the question of what can we do better Mm. as parents? You know, what, what do you think the books that you shared today, I, I loved the 
Um, Julian is a mermaid. Yeah. So can you tell us about that book? Well, that book, um, I just found, I'd seen it, you know, and I read that it was this beautiful book coming out and it's about a little boy who wants to be a mermaid and his abuelita helps him and takes him to the mermaid parade. And it's just such a beautiful story. But what's nice about the story is there's so many kind of intersections of like race. He's clearly a black child, um, but also he's Latino, you know, because of the abuelita. And um, I think there's other kind of language cues that he speaks Spanish. He is doing something that's kind of gender non-conforming, right? That he's putting on a beautiful mermaid outfit and it's all good. It, it's perfectly fine. You know, Abuelita says, all right, well, let's go to the parade. It's just such a lovely book. I have to share, when I graduated from college, I had uh, a second job as a nanny in the Upper West Side. And I hope they're not listening. Or maybe <laughs> I do hope they're listening. I don't know. And um, there were two boys that I was taking care of. And the younger one was, I think, four and a half, five at the time. And he loved having me read books with female protagonists, all the fairy tales with Cinderella and Snow White. And when I read those books, he loved for me to allow him to pretend that he was a girl. So he would take his T-shirt and pull it down to his waist so that, you know, it looked like a skirt. And I say the word allow because his parents didn't. And they had explicitly told me after I, you know, gave an update of what happened during the day. And and the mother in particular was very, very upset that I had done that. And I felt really conflicted because it happened repeatedly. And and I didn't want to sort of shut that part of him down. So I complied with what he wanted. And then it got me fired. Wow. Yeah. You know, and that's so sad because just like race, gender is a social construction, right? We made up what it means to be feminine and masculine, and it starts so early. So when I work with librarians, you know, I talk about how when you make a display that these books are for boys, you know, what what's really your criteria for that? And what happens then? Because girls, I think, can read a boy book and suffer no social consequences, but boys can't. Right. So when a book is pink and it's sparkly and looks like a delight and why wouldn't, of course, who wouldn't want to read this book? But as a boy to say like, oh, I want to check that book out. There's such a cost that's paid for that. And um, it's really unfortunate. So I am really appreciative of the books that are coming out that are pushing the the boundaries that we've created around what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl and showing that like, of course, he wants to be a mermaid. They're beautiful and they're fun and they're in the water and it and it's okay, right? Just the way some people want to be a firefighter or whatever, right? The imagination of children and the ability to be whatever you want to be, um, no matter what that means, is is really important. And it doesn't mean anything more yeah, than that. Yeah, I agree. Fostering creativity and possibility is part of our jobs as yeah. parents so that you could you know, help them tap into what they're interested in and what their talents are. I think it's, you know, we adults, we're afraid, right? It's not children. So, you know, even when I talk about race, like children see difference early. You're yellow, you're red, you're green. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I see it. And when they say it, adults get nervous. 
So, um, you know, I have tons of stories where people will say like, oh, I, I mentioned, you know, my son mentioned, oh, look at that black lady or look at that brown lady or whatever. And I was like, shh, don't say anything. And I thought like, why? They know they're black. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's, there's no judgment. There's that no judgment that they're saying that. it. We have the judgment. So I think gender is a similar thing that, of course, like these stories, these fairy tales, like I want to be the hero or heroine or whatever in this story. And I'm not thinking that I couldn't be. You're putting that on me. And me wanting to be doesn't have anything to do with who I will be, what, you know, what I'll grow up to be. It's the moment that I have right now. Actually, that brings me to an anecdote I wanted to share with you. Um, have you seen Abby Wambach's graduation speech at Barnard? Yes. Yes, I did. So the part that I loved was when she talked about Little Red Riding Hood. Yes. And the wolves. Yes. Do you remember? We are you, the wolves. Can, yeah. Right? Can you, do you want to? Uh, oh, so, you have to give, okay, refresh so, my mind. So in her speech, I remember her talking about Little Red Riding Hood, and the analogy of how she identified with Little Red Riding Hood, how girls in general do, and how we're taught to be not to be curious, not to make trouble, not to say too much, or or else bad things will happen. And then she talked about later on how she viewed herself as more of a wolf and gave an analogy, an anecdote rather, of Yellowstone National Park when they reintroduce wolves into the park to control the deer population. And apparently the wolves' presence helped the vegetation regrow and basically regenerated the the complete plant and animal ecosystem at the park and also stabilized it. And so in a way, the wolves who were feared as a threat to the system turned out to be its salvation. And she used that analogy to describe what we can be like as women, how how women are viewed as a threat and how we can be our own salvation as well. Right. Well, I think now is the time. You know, it's it's in kind of times of where things are changing that people need to come together. And I I do believe, you know, like sisterhood and the idea of like making sure pulling your sisters up with you um, is a really important thing to think about, you know, and even in academia, you see it, right? Like that when you're, we're, we're kind of all operating in our own way and like doing what we feel like we need to do and it's an independent thing. But when you can kind of gather together and for me, um, you know, my sister kind of scholars are the, fr- the women that I can go to with an idea and think about, like, what, what could we do? What can this training look like? Like, what ideas can we bring together? It makes everything a lot stronger. And um, I sometimes think that maybe that's something we've been um, taught not to do, not to look to our sisters, not to share, not, you know, someone will steal your idea. Someone will take mm-hmm. that from you. And I remember feeling that her speech really was a call to action and a call to sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And just contrasting that with, I don't know if you heard the news this week, the AP World History course, which has covered thousands of years of history, they're now scaling it back and they want to start it at 1450. Why? Because there's too much to cover, I guess. I I don't actually know the reason. So that means more than 9,000 years of history will no longer be covered in AP World History, which, of course, is going to cover, you know, most of the world history of people of color in Africa, Asia, and Latin Mm -hmm. America. They're starting at 1450. And if you want to learn about what happened pre-1450, 
there's a new course called Pre-AP World History and Geography, but schools have to purchase it. So there's a cost. Of course, there's always a cost. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. I, I look at my own kind of life trajectory and in trying to understand myself and understand like my place in the world, I had to do a lot of research as an adult, you know, like whether it was research about enslavement and, you know, how it came to be that my people ended up where they ended up. I had to do a lot of personal research. And I sometimes really lament, I mean, I think it's beautiful doing your own personal research and understanding, but I lament how little was taught, how little of a foundation I had to go off of. You know, when I talk about kind of coming back to the little house on the prairie and how I was so interested in this Dr. Tan who shows up on the prairie, I didn't know that Black people could do that. That was not part of the narrative of what I was taught about Black Americans in elementary school, right? You learn that Black people were enslaved. They lived on plantations, and then Martin Luther King came and saved them or something, right? Like, that's kind of the quickie narrative, some weird understanding of how people existed. But I didn't understand, really, that there were black, there were free, free black people who were able to do things and, you know, created literary societies and were living their lives. We're not taught that. I learned that in college. And um, so this absence of narratives, it's damaging. You know, we think that it's not. People grow up and maybe they never are curious about what happened before 1450. But if you're curious about yourself, if you're curious about humanity, then you have to be curious, right? Because that's how we got to where we are. So it's it's sad that um, schools are forcing us all to kind of, well, I mean, maybe it's good. We're all going to go to hopefully to college and keep on learning because you have to, because the limits and the foundations that are being provided are so shaky. Yeah. And I think... There's been a lot of talk, you know, recently with the um, prevalence of, you know, all these Me Too stories um, and its impact on women's careers, like the opportunity cost of what could have been, right? And so similarly to, to race, not having these enabling narratives earlier on, you have to ask yourself what could have been right. of all of us had we had these stories earlier and would we have made different choices with our lives and our careers and our relationships? Right. And I think the answer is yes, right? We're held back by our fear. We're held back by the limits. We're held back by not having sisterhood and brotherhood too, because I think that, you know, just as women need to come together, I think men need to come together. And whether it's, you know, you know, talking out when they're hearing these stories of Me Too and finding a way to be supportive. But we need each other. And something about our society has caused us all to be so individualistic that I think we've lose, we're losing sight of that. And so to go through an educational system where you come out, you don't know that much about yourself, and yet you're kind of taught to rely on yourself and, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it's, it's almost like a, a losing, it's, it's a losing framework. Well, that brings us to the closing of our conversation where um, I ask every guest a series of questions which I've adopted from the Inside the Actor's Studio uh, <laughs> questionnaire. First question, what is at stake in this struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think what's at stake is what's always at stake when you're kind of trying to dismantle, right, the patriarchy and racism, you know, people's 
lives, things that they feel that they know for sure, people's ways of being, um, cultural attitudes. Like there's so much at stake when we really try to make right wrongs. What gives you hope? Children give me hope and children's books give me hope. You know, I can read a children's book and feel like, you know, the, when the, the story that Julian wants to be a mermaid, like that just lit up my life. And I, it gives me hope that we can get it right, you know, and there's always an opportunity. There's always a chance to get it right. And there's always a new story, whether it's your own story or someone else's story, like there's always a new way. So the last question to our listeners, what can we do more of? less of, start or stop to be part of the solution? Hmm. I think we can all always do more of our own work, our own personal work and whatever that means, you know, whether that's therapy, whether that's meditation, you know, the work that we all need to kind of be mentally healthy because it's stressful. It's a lot. We need to have our kind of wits about us. So I think we all need to start doing more of that and stop. You know, I would say we need to... um Honestly, and I know there's a podcast, but we need to stop plugging in so much, right? We need to go a little bit offline and enjoy the sun and walk around and watch a sunset. And, you know, just the other day I was walking around and I was marveling at the fireflies. And I realized like I hadn't just done that, stood outside and watched fireflies since I was a kid. So I think we need to stop feeling that we need to be so productive and so plugged in and really take some time out to just enjoy the beauty of life. You know, I would always say do more reading. I love to read and just reading for fun and, you know, reading, opening a good book. We need to do less fighting and, you know, this kind of attacking and blaming and you don't belong here and kind of policing of one another. So we need to do less of that and give more love. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt. The mission of CanDoIt is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you. Thank you.